0: they had heard and seen, as it had been told them.
1: Thank you, Rachel. I asked Rachel to speak because I figured you got to listen to me for an hour and a half. Now you'd want a nice voice to <laughs> you'd what a nice voice to start with. Sorry, you've not met me before. I'm uh, Matthew, and uh, I make silly jokes at the beginning of my preaches. All right, but uh, welcome. <laughs> um, Love this passage. I've loved uh, spending time in it this week. Um, it just makes you feel like Christmas is coming, doesn't it? Um, but what I'm going to do this morning, I'm just going to. I'm not going to get baptised again, am I? I've already. I've been baptised. So, but um, what all I'm going to do is just work through the passage, just pointing out a few things that stand out to me, and then I'll just have a few points this morning. And for those of pe- people here that like falling asleep during sermons. Um, My three points are basically, we're looking at responses at the moment to events in the nativity, I guess we call it. Stop looking nervous, it's all right. And uh, the responses I'm looking at this morning are worship, humility and obedience, with all three points being the same point. Um, So we work through the passage and... uh, In those days, Caesar Augustus, so Caesar, Emperor of the Roman people. Stop laughing at me. Do you want me to step off the baptistry? (laughs) Hey, your daughter's a poster girl. I know it is today. Didn't you? Their their daughter's in the choir at the cathedral and she's the poster girl outside for all the Christmas services this year. (laughs) Did you not know, Keith? Oh, she's on the... (laughs) (laughs) They talk really well, these two. Um, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. The purpose of a census wasn't like now, where we want to know who's living where, in what type of house and how many people. That was a purpose, but their purpose was for collecting taxes. So Caesar Augustus wanted to collect taxes from everyone who lives in the Roman world. He's called Caesar Augustus because his Senate have voted that Augustus will be added to his name so he's the emperor he's called Augustus he's called the exalted one so he's Caesar the exalted one uh, Roman emperor and um, anyone who was around in September Phil did a very good preach on the beginning of Mark looking at the names and what they all meant and I'd recommend is that online? yeah I'd recommend going back to that one So I'm not going to go into it too much um, because Phil did a good job with that one already but um, it does come in useful in a little while So everyone went to his own town to register. So we've got a Roman occupation ordering a census, but the census in Israel is taken in a Jewish way. So people go back to the town of their ancestors rather than the town they live in. The Romans did it in... There is a point to this in a minute, don't worry. The Romans were like us. You just did a census in the house you lived in, but the people of Israel, whenever they did a census... Or Account or anything, they went back. The emphasis was on where your ancestors were, which here for David, uh, David, for Joseph and Mary, even though they're not married yet, both their ancestors came through Bethlehem, the town where David was born. Um, so everyone went to his own town to register. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary. Now Mary had to go to Bethlehem as well anyway, not just because she was with Joseph, they're not married yet, but because she's over the age of 12, she also has to pay taxes and she also has to go and register. So Joseph being the good, we call it betrothed, fiancé, being the good fiancé, takes her with her um, looking after it, and because they expect- well, she's expecting a baby, he's not. Well, he's probably expecting one, it's just not his, is it? So the belly's probably giving it away a little bit, and all the angels that have been speaking to him, and I'm going to shut up. While they were there, Mary goes into labour, the time comes for the baby to be born, uh, and she gives birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wraps him in cloths, and places him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is either in a stable or a cave, or depending on what you read. But basically, they're in an animal enclosure surrounded by poo and straw, and it's not going to be that warm. So the baby's swaddled and in a cow's feeding trough. And, you know, we're coming to the fact that Jesus is the king of the universe, and he chooses, chooses to be born in the most humble and disgusting place possibly that he could have picked in the universe at that time. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now these shepherds are about as far from the religious elite that you would expect God to come and speak to as we're going to find. These people were considered thieves. They were considered scum. They weren't allowed in the temple, but they were good enough to, or bad enough they're shepherds probably of, in the fields around Bethlehem, the sheep that we used for sacrifices in the temple. So one shepherd of sacrificial sheep comes to visit in the passage, another shepherd, Mary. But, um, so angels come, and who do they come to to announce? We're talking about big Christmas lights that anyone can go and see, and that really struck this morning. And uh, We've got these big Christmas lights that we, we would set up in a town for as many people to come and see as we possibly can, wouldn't we? Because we want everyone to see it, we want everyone to glorify it, we want everyone to praise it and see what a good job we've done, especially if we're spending all that money on electric. But God doesn't work that way. He sends some angels and a heavenly host, so an orchestra like you're never going to imagine, a light show that is absolutely phenomenal. It lights up the whole sky. And who does he do it for? Does he do it over the temple, to the Pharisees and the religious elite and all the people who are devotedly making their sacrifices every day? Or does he appear to a few shepherds who are considered the scum of the earth and the outcasts of Israel on a hill in the middle of the night on a cold evening? I assume it's cold. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. And Keith spoke on fear last week. Terrified doesn't quite describe it to me. I've got expressions I'd probably use that you're not supposed to use in church. But I would be absolutely shivering with fear, I think. That wasn't intentional, actually. That's not me, we've got guests. I would be absolutely shivering with fear at these angels appearing because. As a shepherd, consider the outcast. You're not allowed in the church. All you're good enough for is looking after sheep and keeping your life at risk because of animals and thieves and whatnot coming after you. And you're always in the rain. And people stay away from you when you're a shepherd. You're considered about as unclean as you're ever going to get. So for angels to suddenly appear in the sky, I wouldn't assume, actually, they were coming to me for good reasons. And I just... I want to share something. It's about me, but it's supposed to be about him. And I'm talking about a night about eight or nine years ago. I sat down. I'd had a couple of drinks. I didn't know God. No one had ever really spoken to me about him. And I sat down, and my intention was that I probably wouldn't see the next day. That was what I sat down with the intention of. And I thought of a few things in my house that I didn't want my parents to find when they came to sort the house out. And uh, so I started tidying up the house. And then in the last drawer that I went in, I found a little red Gideon's Bible that had been given to me on my first day of school. And uh, I know we've got one Gideon in the room, so you like this story. But uh, I opened up this Bible. And for some reason, I opened up this book of the Bible. And I started reading the book of Luke. And a little bit after this passage, I suddenly started to realise, and I'd kind of not been... I'd be like a shepherd, really. I've not been someone who you'd ever want in your church. I'd never been invited into one. I had treated people in my life very badly. And that's about as far as we'll go. Um, but uh, So I sat down, and I became I suddenly started to see how much of my life was an absolute affront to God. That not just I treated people badly, and so I probably wasn't quite a nice guy, I actually started to see that we had a holy and pure God, and that my life was an affront to him. And I suddenly realised that if I did something then, I wasn't going to somewhere nice. I realised right there and then that I'd wake up in hell. And I just knew it, I was convicted of it, to to the core of my bones. And I thought, well, what do I do now? Because I can't live knowing that I am such an affront to God. I can't live knowing I'm this person. I can't live knowing... I thought, how am I going to get up tomorrow knowing that I'm this person and really seeing myself as I am to God, knowing there's a God and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. I'm feeling it in my bones. And I knew that if I took my life there and then, there was definitely no way out. So, in my... What do I do? I just kept reading the Bible, and I got to the passage of a sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee, which people might know in Luke 7, of the sinful woman coming and washing Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee saying, why would you let someone like that touch your feet? And um, you know, I won't go through the passage too much, but basically Jesus saying to her, your sins are forgiven. And even though I didn't know about the cross, And no one had ever really explained through the gospel for me. I mean, the next day I went out and found someone who could. But there and then I felt God's presence in the room so strongly saying to me that I forgive you. And if you give your life to me now, I will give you new life and I will forgive everything and take it away. And I will give you this new life and I will send you out to love people. And trust me, from the man I'd been to the man that God says He's going to make me, because I'm a long way off still. Don't worry. That was, I mean, I'm going to come to it a little bit later, but that to me was like a rebirth. I was uh, ended up on the floor praying and shivering like a little newborn baby or something. You know, it was a new thing. God had delivered me through that night in the Spirit, but through the Bible as well. And I can't even remember why I went on to that story. I wasn't going to talk about it, but. God comes in the middle of the night to a group of shepherds to people who don't deserve it to people who by any standards are not deserving and they say do not be afraid well that was it because of the fear of God that I had in my heart that night and the angels say do not be afraid I bring you good news so don't be scared of us they reassure us Of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This is amazing. A saviour. Israel have been waiting for a saviour for, well, since forever. It's um, 700 years since, it's not Malachi. Who said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem? I wrote it down and I've forgotten. Since a prophet announced that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, it's 400 years since God's voice was last heard from a prophet. I could tell you, and I've forgotten it. Um, and tonight, the shepherds are the first to hear that he's been born. And he is Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the one that God has chosen to save people. Now, the shepherds wouldn't have fully understood what that meant, much like I didn't the night that I got saved. I didn't fully understand everything that had just changed in me. It sometimes comes afterwards. But, Gee, Some people in Israel were expecting a political leader. Some people were expecting someone who was going to take over the temple. Some people were just expecting another prophet who would come and say nice things. But Jesus is a, was the saviour who would defeat death and defeat sin and bring new life to ever, anyone who wants it across the whole world. And it also says he is Christ the Lord. And like when Mark is using names in um, the book of Mark, the Christ the Lord bit is important. This is the, we're only in chapter 2 and this is the 20th time now the word the Lord has been used. And in every time before that, the Lord is u- used to point to the fact that the Lord is God. So these angels are announcing to these lowly shepherds that God has just been born as a baby in a manger. Absolutely phenomenal. And a great company of the heavenly hosts, so a massive orchestra and live show starts in the background, appearing with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. A bit different to Caesar Augustus. Who, with the Pax Romana, that I remember Phil speaking, it was you that was speaking about it, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the fact that because the Romans had conquered everywhere and were administrating and taking taxes, that the world knew peace because the Romans had conquered the world. But here. The angels are declaring something much more. They're declaring peace to all men who can come to know God and be saved through Jesus Christ, who'd just been born. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see. Instantly. Not not the shepherds said, shall we go? God's been born in in a... He's lying in a manger swaddled in cloth. Should we go? Oh, no, nah, it's not really worth it, is it? No, they just went. God spoke through angels, but God spoke and they went. Instant obedience. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Now, there's a preach just there about going out and telling everyone about... Jesus because we've met him and therefore our instant reaction should be to go out and tell everyone but um, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. I mean apart from the fact you know you read testimonies from gangsters and um, people who've been former drug addicts and people who've committed all sorts of sins and led a life, you would never, looking at their life, choose them to then go and preach the gospel or for God to then go and do work. So imagine how amazed these people were when shepherds are suddenly going around the towns, not in the hills, they've left their sheep behind. They're going around telling everyone about this amazing thing that they've just seen Jesus do. Because that's what God does, I guess, isn't it? He takes the people and I'm not intending offence to people in the room, but if we've been chosen by God, there's quite a chance that at some point in your life you've had to recognise the point that you're far from God's ideal. Every single one of us, that's part of the deal. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. And that's kind of... The angels, the, well, the angels were responding. The shepherd's response, the highest power in the universe, God Himself, allowing His glory to be revealed to the lowest in the universe, shepherds on a hill in Bethlehem. Absolutely phenomenal. That's where God's glory is. We're talking about the lights this morning. You don't send a light into a light. It's just light still. But you send a light into darkness, it makes light. It makes more light. It lights up a room. We don't always like what's in the darkness. We don't know what we're going to bump into, but that's the point of it being a light. God helps us to see. And uh, the shepherds respond through fear initially and then worship. And then humility, they knew they were shepherds, they knew who they were. And then obedience, they did as God has asked. The angels respond. They, they're worshipping God. They come and they worship and they pass on a message as instructed. And they, they worship because they, they need the humility to worship, to recognise God above them. And they're obedient. They just, they're angels, they do what they're told when they're told to. And Mary's response, which I believe I wasn't here, but Keith was looking at last week, she would have been scared witless. Here you go, you're going to have a baby and you're going to have to raise it. But what's one of the first thing Mary does? She worships. She says, wow, God, you're amazing. You're going to use me. And she worships. And in Luke 1, I believe, there's a whole song that she sang with her heart rejoicing to God despite the fact that she must have been scared witless. She was going to have to potentially bring a baby up on her own. People were going to spend their whole life talking about her, little aside, say she's the one who, you know, wasn't married when she had the baby. Joseph responds, initially, out of fear, but then he agrees to do, as an angel appears to him, he agrees to do God has asked him, and he marries Mary, and he brings up a son that's not his own, and then brings up a family with Mary, and That wouldn't have been easy, especially in that culture. People would have muttered at him, would have criticised him. Um, They wouldn't have been the family that you invited to all your parties, I'm imagining. and We see a God here, as awesome as he is, and the thing that strikes me is just... We talk about God being a God of space, and you know, He created the universe in power and majesty, and He just spoke a word, and there was light, and it must have just exploded. And uh, you know, we, th- we can think of the power in that sense, but the power of God that He was born into a manger at just the right time, in the way that a prophet spoke about 700 years ago or so before that, sorry, 700 years before that, someone said, he, the Saviour will be born in Bethlehem. And God, yeah, a Roman Emperor is the one who makes it happen. A Roman Emperor decrees a census and God works with that and then he works with the Jewish culture in that God knows then that the um, people will have to go to Bethlehem, David and Mary, and he's already chosen them. He's already had angels speak to them. So even before this, God's spoken to them making all these things happen. And it comes to be like, Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem, but God has been planning that for thousands of years. God has always known that that would happen. And then we go forward 33 years, and we see this baby that was born in a manger, he's he's on a cross. And you think, well, like the manger, the cross wasn't an accident. It was come back a bit again, sorry. The manger wasn't an accident. It wasn't, oh, God had planned all that, and then he forgot to sort out lodgings for Mary and Joseph. He didn't think, oh, I've got everything else right, all that planning, and I forgot to sort them out a hotel room. Jesus, deliberately, when he stepped down to earth, when he was born... He showed his intentions. The angels showed it being born, showing themselves to shepherds. But Jesus joined the lowest of the low to show that he had become like us. If he'd been born in a palace, it wouldn't have been much of a statement, would it? I've come for comfort. Jesus didn't come for comfort. He came to achieve a mission. He came to dwell among people like ourselves. He... So 33 years later, Jesus comes to be hanging on a cross. Pardon me if that doesn't sound respectful enough. I do intend it that way. I'm just... And I've heard people say, Oh, it was really bad because he was, you know... Imagine what he could have done. Someone said that to me once. Imagine what Jesus could have done if you hadn't been murdered. Well, that was the point of it all. That... As he said to Pilate, you can't do anything to me that my father's not willed. Okay, Jesus came not just to be born in a manger humbly, he also came to die the most humbling and painful and sufferable death that could possibly happen again for us so that his father's mission could be achieved. So when he was born in Bethlehem, in whichever year it was, then 33 years later he finds himself On a cross, and it it wasn't because, it was because, but it wasn't because the Jewish leaders really didn't like him and they got really angry with him. It wasn't because on that day Barabbas was offered as an alternative. It wasn't because Pilate was weak and he didn't want to stand up to crowds. It wasn't because Herod said, Oh, I can't be bothered to go back. It wasn't because any of those things. It was because God, the Father, Holy Spirit, in union before the creation of the world said, This is what will need to be done to redeem these people. And Jesus said, I will go and I will be that person. Jesus said, I will step out of heaven and the comfort and the glory and the the worship of my Father. And of this amazing environment. And I will step down onto that earth full of sin and wretchedness and people who are ignoring my father and people who are doing horrible things to each other and I will give my life in the worst way, little girls waving at the back, I will give my life in the worst way so that they can all know that their sins are paid for and that through me they can come and they can know God and that they can be saved. So we read a passage like this and it says a saviour is born and we say amen a saviour's been born he's going to free us and everything but what did he know throughout his whole life he was going to have to go through? The cross wasn't a surprise to Jesus he told his disciples time and time again he knew exactly what he was going to have to go through how he would be humbled And yet that humbling doesn't show Jesus as nothing. That humbling shows Jesus as absolutely everything. It shows him as the one in in charge of time, eternity, all events. And so because he knew that his father was in charge, he was able to allow those people around him to do what they did. To say to Pilate, you've got no power over what over me except what my father gives you he can say just pay your taxes it doesn't matter you just do what the people that have been put in leadership you just do what they say and god works in that and you end up exactly where god intended and i'm i'm hoping that that looking at the timing of things and everything it, it kind of leads to seeing how awesome god is Just how amazing and huge the fact that despite we've got all these different things going on everywhere, God is in charge ultimately of what happened to him, what happened to Jesus, that the cross wasn't an accident. It was planned. And while all these people are conniving away and doing everything, and it's true today just as much as it was then, we're not very good as Christians at submitting to God's will or to the things around us. And to me that comes from the fact that um, we struggle with our view of God and ourselves quite a lot with humility and obedience. And uh, to worship God requires a higher view of him and a lower view of ourselves. As John the Baptist said, he must become more and I must become less. And I don't say this as someone preaching as if I've achieved it. This is a daily thing. You know, Mark was talking earlier about search my heart, God. You know, that's a daily thing because it's just something that is ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. Until we stand in glory, we're just not going to be there. But to worship God requires a higher view of Him and a lower view of ourselves, as does humility. And with humility, I don't mean going around going, oh, I'm rubbish, I am. I'm rubbish at this I'm not a nice person I'm just because that's still about yourself humility is about having the right view of God and your right view of yourself in relation to God and uh so we I'm going to be a bit offensive to people I think because I like doing that every now and again. And the guests have had time to get used to me. But uh, to God, I mean, you think about what we were before God came into our lives. And I don't mean as individuals. I mean, biblically, what were we until God breathed his life onto mankind, onto Adam? What were we? Dirt. We were just dirt. Do what does Paul say our most righteous deeds are compared to... Sorry? Well, actually, he says a really rude word for poo. Now, I'm at a dog walker this morning, don't worry. But um, compared to God, without God, without him breathing his life into us, we're just dirt. And without Jesus' righteousness, God is so holy and pure, anything we do to try and be more like God or... or right before God or anything we do because we refuse God that's just more dirt or Paul's more specific and I'm not going to swear but Paul uses a word why are you looking nervous it's only dirt I'm going to try not to spill it on your lovely carpet if anyone's uh, from the building by the way but um, you know that's, that's compared to God that's what we are And that's what our deeds are. That's even trying to say, I don't know. We set up a soup kitchen because we think that'll make us look good. That'll make us look like a real church, won't it? We set up a soup kitchen and we'll bless this town. But in itself, without God in it, without it being something God has called us to do, without us working because God's called us, it's just more of that. It's just dirt. And, when, and I mean that. I don't mean you shouldn't set up a soup kitchen. Because, I, I, you know, that's the sort of thing I want to see us do. And I want to see us changing this town and the people that really need it. The shepherds of the town. That's what we're here for. But anything we do that's not of Jesus. When we come to stand before Jesus after we die. And he says, what have you done with what I gave you? And uh, if it's not something he's given us. If it's not something that he wants us to do. We're going to stand there and do that oh, it looked a lot better down there. It looked a lot better when I looked at it there and I had ambition and I actually thought it made me look like a really good Christian and people really believed I was following you with all my heart and everything and I put so much effort into it. And um, Sorry, mate. That's pants. So we, we, do, we realise, don't we, that we're not like that and so we, we then we think right so I'm not going to try I'm not going to do anything I'm not going to try anything so I'm going to show Jesus my (gasps) that's the stain of sin isn't it because doing things that aren't for God is sin and you still then you just cover yourself in it and then you try and wash it off on other people you try and criticise them or anything like that and you just end up spreading this smearing yet we've got to stand pure and holy before a God so what do we do? Look, Lieutenant Dan, I've got new hands. We, we go to Jesus and we continually repent and we continually ask Him to come and clean us with His righteousness. And we do things. We're doing things. I mean, God has, I keep hearing people saying and talking about the exciting ideas God has for Freedom Church in Chester and the heart that He is building up in some people here. But it has to be His heart. And it has to be us working together in unity, with His heart, not following a great idea that Keith and Rachel have. Although, if that is how God chooses to work, and I'm coming to leadership and following leaders in a minute, so I'm not being uh, rebellious. Don't worry. I want you to do what I say, not what Keith says. <laughs> Don't like Keith's idea. Did I just say that out loud, Oops. So, we gain that humility. Now, I'm not saying you've got to think of yourself as dirt all the time. Because the amazing thing is that through that death on the cross, God loves us as children. Through that death on the cross that Jesus had to horribly suffer, it wasn't just a case of, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Which we are. We're all sinners without Christ. So... And we need to admit commit and confess that to come into a relationship with Jesus because without it, we're just proud people. But, um, and we're still separated by God by our pride then if we're not able to confess it. But um, I've forgotten where I was going. You should always preach with a lot of notes, shouldn't you? <laughs> what was I talking about? Are you not listening? Huh? Yeah. Speaking to be leaders like that as well. Um, So we, oh that was it, yes. We gain Christ's righteousness. We become children of the heavenly father. He loves us with an undying love and a passion that means he will never let us go. And that is a value that we have but it comes from him. It doesn't come from anything in us. He didn't look at you before you came to Christ and think, oh that's a diamond in the rough. The rest of them. It's only you Keith you're the diamond in the room the rest of them were rubbish they're proper sinners but you know you were a diamond and God chose you because you're special no don't know why I'm picking on you Pete God chose you because you're a shepherd and shepherds when they meet God and they accept their shepherds will go and do what they can to tell everyone what God has done and who God is, is who God is. And work together to do what God asked them to do, not for themselves anymore. If you think about it, Jesus coming, did those shepherds out of a job? Because they're there looking after the sacrificial sheep. But Jesus comes, he's the one sacrificial sheep who gives his life for all of us. And those sheep are not needed anymore. The shepherds are redundant. They've You've been given a new job as evangelist anyway, so it's fine. But we worship a God as redeemed dirt. Does that sound better and less offensive? And I'm sorry, I can see people nodded off, so it won't be too much longer. But we're redeemed dirt, worshipping an awesome God who is so far away and so glorious that we wouldn't be able to see him except for the fact he came down to us and he gives us his spirit to lift us further towards him. And we gain humility from that, of knowing we're loved, of knowing that we are special to him despite everything, but because he is love. Could you imagine a God who, and I don't want to, but a lot of people do, a God who's just like, you're dirt, I'm just going to kick you around a bit, I'm just going to keep reminding you that you're nothing special, I'm just going to keep reminding you you're dirt, and I'm just going to do it from a distance. And every time you make a mistake, I'm going to send another bloke down there to tell you something horrible about yourselves, tell you how far away and distant you are from me. No, he came down and he died for us. That was humility. He stepped down out of what he deserved and what he was entitled to and came and spent time in a manger and died on a cross and, you know chose men to hang around with who would have seriously got on your nerves with the way they just bickered and argued all the time. So because of that humility we recognise therefore through the gospel that our life is no longer our own. We recognise that I'm going to put myself and my sin and my wants and my desires, I've put all those to death. I am going to live for God and we think well how do you do that then? And part of that because of the fact that we recognise that it's not about us anymore and because it is about him is that we respect the authority around us and firstly by obeying God so it's a bit easier for us than it was the shepherds perhaps because we've got a bible that reveals God's love to us but it also helps us work through how we walk as Christians so we don't pick and choose the bits that we don't think we should or shouldn't do that makes any sense in English. So Jesus wasn't giving good advice. Jesus was God explaining things to us. One of the um, passages in the Bible, I've heard, I read this morning, and it was almost like God put it there for an illustration point, that um, members of parliament have just been voted for a, I think it's a seven and a half percent pay rise. And my initial thought it's quite critical. But, and I start thinking, oh, they're only in it for themselves or whatever. And then they, they start making rules that I don't agree with. They say they're going to do this, and I don't agree with that. And they, don't, they say this, and I don't agree with that. And they put more taxes in. Well, Joseph and Mary were obedient. They showed their obedience. And God achieved his purposes through people following the government, by people following what the leaders and an emperor said. I mean, we think because we've got democracy, that we're better. We think democracy is us in power. That's how it's sold to us, isn't it? That we're having a say on who's the leaders, but God put David Cameron in charge just as much as he put uh, Julius Caesar in charge. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one... To be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility to all men. We're to respect the people put in authority over us in government, whether we like it or not. That includes at work. I bet a lot of people, anyone who's ever worked here has had a boss well, I know you're all your own bosses, aren't you, you guys at the front? But I'm sure a lot of people here have had bosses and they thought, oh, they really don't know what they're doing. I wouldn't do it that way. And therefore, you, don't, you find yourselves not doing it their way because you think their way's rubbish. And then when it doesn't work, you think, I told you. I see it all the time. I work in quite a big organisation. I see it all the time. The reason it didn't work wasn't because the leader was wrong. The reason it didn't work was because all the people behind it naysaying, didn't get behind it to help make it work and give their energy in a humble way to say, I don't agree, but what I'm going to do is because I'm employed here and because I work for my employer like I work for God because that's what God asked me to do, I'm going to give everything to their way of doing it and then if it fails, I know that I gave it everything, that I did as I should. Is that, that's what we do, isn't it, as Christians? Hopefully. Um, church leadership. I'm not going to say much on this because I'm not a church leader, really, and, you know, Keith sat in front of me. don't have to make a fist. But everyone's into discussing things these days, and that's fine, and I quite like it. I like to know what people say, and I don't mean this as, as in... Churches should be dictatorships. But if Keith has a picture of the church and of where we're going, and I don't agree with it, what are my choices? Biblically. As a humble follower of Christ who respects authority over me, what are my choices? None. I follow what... This man has set out for the vision of the church. And it's alright for me because he's not asked me to do anything this week that I don't want to do. And he doesn't really do that, does he? He's, um, if you're going to get a graceful guy to lead a church, you're going to pick Keith. But my point is, church isn't about meeting the needs all the time of everyone who joins it. And oh, When, when Keith sets up, I don't know, growth groups... Then I'm going to volunteer to be a growth group leader. And then and apologies if this has ever been an issue because he doesn't talk to me about this stuff. So if I'm picking something, I'm not doing it deliberately. But then I'll get involved and I'll put some effort into it. If they ever set up a soup kitchen, instead of just going into town and trying to meet people or giving out gloves to people who are cold, if they ever set up a proper soup kitchen, then I'm going to help. But until then... X-Factor's on. We as a church, talking about Catherine's lights again, that was a great picture. We as a church are a group of lights. And we go into the darkness and we will shine brighter when we shine together. And a light only knows whether to be on or off, generally. You get fancy lights now that are flashing patterns. But we're on or off. We're either for Christ's mission through this church, led by Keith, or we're not. We're either a light or we're not. And I'm not, that's not a go, I'm not aware of any issues, you know what I mean? That's just what I felt as I'm working down from God and work and church and whatever. Ephesians 5.15, I love this passage because we always miss it. And everyone probably knows it already, but there's a passage immediately after this, it's the worst place heading in the whole Bible because it's just before wives and husbands. And everyone, the next line is, wives, submit to your husbands as if to the Lord. And every, that, that's always a big controversy, isn't it? People hear that one. No, it's not a controversy. Well, I've been to some churches where it is, you know. or, or it's, it's a bigger controversy for people outside the church than in it. But the line just before it, where he's talking about the church and each other and how we manage a church, it's this line, and you don't hear it very often. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Keith, even though you're a nice guy, even though you're graceful, even though you're not difficult to follow, I ultimately, I'm not going to follow Keith because of Keith. That's not why we as Christians follow a leader of the church. We follow out of reverence for Christ. We do it out of humility because we recognise that God is in charge and that a particular person is who has been put in charge, uh, put in charge, not put in charge made responsible for the church one day the Bible says he's going to have to give account for how he's led us and what it actually tells us as members of the church and I don't know why I'm going on so long it's probably because I don't know what to say next but what it does tell us is to honour give our leaders double honour it tells us to pray for them Um, it doesn't tell us to make their life harder now don't get me wrong if you've got a pastoral issue if there's something wrong you need to speak to Keith then you need to speak to Keith or whoever i'm not saying don't bother him don't give him an easy life because that that's not part of being a church leader is it an easy life but um, what i am saying is if you're not praying for him if we as a group of people aren't praying for him and i mean all the time and if we're not Living our lives in honour to him and what God is leading us all through him as a church. Jesus is the head of the church, but then Keith is the leader of the church, if you know what I mean. So I'm not trying to put him above Jesus either. If we're not doing that, then we're not going to be in a position where we can ever, well, we're never in a position where we can criticise or do something different. And all of this leads to the opposite way, isn't it? So not bothering with God. Not doing as we feel God's asking us to do. Um, Going to work and it's just a job. I don't have to put effort in. They don't really pay me very much. So what's the point of really doing too much for them and the business is struggling? So what's that got to do with me? Uh, Well, nothing's going on at the church this week. Keith's announced a few things, but not really my thing. I don't need to get involved in that. And That ultimately comes from a lack of worship in our lives, in the sense of reverence to God, that God's come down in His estimation in our lives to the point that we've come above it, and our inconvenience and our discomfort and our own thoughts and pride become above actually what God says and what God wants for us, and so we forget that we would do it and that God. He's glorious and amazing and praiseworthy. And we start, and I do it all the time, I start saying to Cho, why haven't you done this today? Why haven't you done that? And I start to think, actually, you know, she's been looking after a couple of kids all day, sometimes four. And I get critical of why haven't you done this? Because my life's a little harder, do you know what I mean? And then, and that's from a love of God as well. That's, you know, loving my wife. That comes from how you treat the people around you, especially your spouse, I think probably shows how you feel about God more than anything because they're the relationships that he's called you into. to be. When I first got married, um, I said to my pastor, and it's enough years later for me to get away with saying this, I said, you know, I can be a nice guy around anyone, but when my wife winds me up, she said, it's only her that brings that out of me. And he just turned around and he said, Matthew, that's who you really are. It's not who you are when, when you stood at the front and you're smiling or when you're reading the notices in church or when you're at work and everything's going fine. Who you are is that person when you start getting ratty with your spouse because they're getting on your nerves. The person you're with the most because that reveals your heart. We become proud and self-important so we cease to submit, we cease to obey, we cease to worship. I don't, I've got no idea what the time is. We harden ourselves. Is it? What time do you want me to finish? Okay. <laughs> well Simon's been for a wee three times. JC Ryle posted on Twitter this morning. It costs something to be a true Christian. It's amazing, isn't he? It will cost us our sins. It will cost us our self-righteousness. It will cost us our ease, and it will cost us our worldliness. Charles Spurgeon put on Facebook this morning because it's a much longer quote. Who'd have thought? This is, you know, he said this a hundred odd years ago, didn't he? And here he is still on Facebook. There are many points and particulars in which the gospel is offensive to human nature and revolting to the pride of the creature. But the gospel was not intended to please man. How can we attribute such a purpose to God? As in that the gospel should be nice to man. Why should we devise a goal to suit the whims of our fallen human nature? He intended to save man. But he never intended to gratify their deprived tastes. And I've forgotten what that quote was all about now. But. It's a good one, though, isn't it? Um, We make the gospel about ourselves instead of about Jesus. And we start making our life again about ourselves instead of about Jesus. I have finished.